Chapter 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum. Written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josip. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum. Chapter 1. Early Life. I was born in the town of Bethel, in the state of Connecticut, July the 5th, 1810. My name, Phineas Taylor, is derived from my maternal grandfather, who was a great wag in his way, and who, as I was his first grandchild, gravely handed over to my mother at my christening a gift deed, in my behalf, of five acres of land situated in that part of the parish of Bethel, known as the Plum Trees. I was thus a real estate owner almost at my very birth, and of my property, Ivy Island, something shall be said anon. My father, Philo Barnum, was the son of Ephraim Barnum, of Bethel, who was a captain in the Revolutionary War. My father was a tailor, a farmer, and sometimes a tavern-keeper, and my advantages and disadvantages were such as fall to the general run of farmers' boys. I drove cows to and from the pasture, shelled corn, weeded the garden. As I grew larger, I rode horse for ploughing, turned and raked hay. In due time I handled the shovel and the hoe, and when I could do so, I went to school. I was six years old when I began to go to school, and the first date I remember inscribing upon my writing book was 1818. The ferule in those days was the assistant schoolmaster, but in spite of it I was a willing and, I think, a pretty apt scholar. At least I was so considered by my teachers and schoolmates, and as the years went on there were never more than two or three in the school who were deemed my superiors. In arithmetic I was unusually ready and accurate, and I remember at the age of twelve years being called out of bed one night by my teacher, who had wagered with a neighbor, that I could calculate the correct number of feet in a load of wood in five minutes. The dimensions given, I figured out the result in less than two minutes, to the great delight of my teacher and to the equal astonishment of his neighbor. My organ of acquisitiveness was manifest at an early age. Before I was five years of age, I began to accumulate pennies and fourpences, and when I was six years old, my capital amounted to a sum sufficient to exchange for a silver dollar, the possession of which made me feel far richer and more independent than I have ever since felt in the world. Nor did my dollar long remain alone. As I grew older, I earned ten cents a day for riding the horse, which led the ox team in ploughing, and on holidays and training days, instead of spending money, I earned it. I was a small peddler of molasses candy, of home make, gingerbread, cookies and cherry rum, and I generally found myself a dollar or two richer at the end of a holiday than I was at the beginning. I was always ready for a trade, and by the time I was twelve years old, besides other property, I was the owner of a sheep and a calf, and should soon, no doubt, have become a small Croesus, had not my father kindly permitted me to purchase my own clothing, which somewhat reduced my little store. 
When I was nearly 12 years old, I made my first visit to the metropolis. It happened in this wise. Late one afternoon in January 1822, Mr. Daniel Brown of Southbury, Connecticut, arrived at my father's tavern in Bethel with some fat cattle he was driving to New York to sell. The cattle were put into our large barnyard, the horses were stabled, and Mr. Brown and his assistant were provided with a warm supper and lodging for the night. After supper I heard Mr. Brown say to my father that he intended to buy more cattle, and that he would be glad to hire a boy to assist in driving the cattle. I immediately besought my father to secure the situation for me, and he did so. My mother's consent was also gained, and at daylight next morning, after a slight breakfast, I started on foot in the midst of a heavy snowstorm to help drive the cattle. Before reaching Ridgefield, I was sent on horseback after a stray ox, and in galloping the horse fell and my ankle was sprained. I suffered severely, but did not complain lest my employer should send me back. But he considerately permitted me to ride behind him on his horse, and indeed did so most of the way to New York, where we arrived in three or four days. We put up at the Bull's Head Tavern, where we were to stay a week while the drawer was disposing of his cattle, and we were then to return home in a sleigh. It was an eventful week for me. Before I left home my mother had given me a dollar, which I supposed would supply every want that heart could wish. My first outlay was for oranges, which I was told were four pence apiece. And as for a pence in Connecticut was six cents, I offered ten cents for two oranges, which was of course readily taken. And thus, instead of saving two cents, as I thought, I actually paid two cents more than the price demanded. I then bought two more oranges, reducing my capital to eighty cents. Thirty-one cents was the charge for a small gun which would go off and send a stick some little distance, and this gun I bought. Amusing myself with this toy in the barroom of the bull's head, the arrow happened to hit the barkeeper, who forthwith came from behind the counter and shook me and soundly boxed my ears, telling me to put that gun out of the way, or he would put it into the fire. I sneaked to my room, put my treasure under the pillow, and went out for another visit to the toy shop. There I invested six cents in torpedoes, with which I intended to astonish my schoolmates in Bethel. I could not refrain, however, from experimenting upon the guests of the hotel, which I did when they were going in to dinner. I threw two of the torpedoes against the wall of the hall through which the guests were passing, and the immediate results were as follows. Two loud reports, astonished guests, irate landlord, discovery of the culprit, and summary punishment, for the landlord immediately floored me with a single blow with his open hand, and said, There, you little greenhorn, see if that will teach you better than to explode your infernal firecrackers in my house again. The lesson was sufficient, if not entirely satisfactory. I deposited the balance of the torpedoes with my gun, and as a solace for my wounded feelings, I again visited the toy shop, where I bought a watch, breastpin and top, 
leaving but 11 cents of my original dollar. The following morning found me again at the fascinating toy shop, where I saw a beautiful knife with two blades, a gimlet and a corkscrew. A whole carpenter shop in miniature, and all for 31 cents, but alas, I had only 11 cents. Have that knife I must, however, and so I proposed to the shopwoman to take back the top and breastpin at a slight deduction, and with my eleven cents to let me have the knife. The kind creature consented, and this makes memorable my first swap. Some fine and nearly white molasses candy then caught my eye, and I proposed to trade the watch for its equivalent in candy. The transaction was made and the candy was so delicious that before night my gun was absorbed in the same way. The next morning the torpedoes went off in the same direction, and before night even my beloved knife was similarly exchanged. My money and my goods all gone, I traded two pocket handkerchiefs and an extra pair of stockings, I was sure I should not want for nine more rolls of molasses candy, and then wandered about the city disconsolate, sighing because there was no more molasses candy to conquer. I doubt not that in these first wanderings about the city I often passed the corner of Broadway and Ann Street, never dreaming of the stir I was destined at a future day to make in that locality as proprietor and manager of the American Museum. After wandering, gazing and wandering for a week, Mr. Brown took me in his sleigh, and on the evening of the following day we arrived in Bethel. I had a thousand questions to answer, and then, and for a long time afterwards, I was quite a lion among my mates, because I had seen the great metropolis. My brothers and sisters, however, were much disappointed at my not bringing them something from my dollar, and when my mother examined my wardrobe and found two pocket handkerchiefs and one pair of stockings missing, she whipped me and sent me to bed. Thus ingloriously terminated my first visit to New York. Previous to my visit to New York, I think it was in 1820, when I was ten years of age, I made my first expedition to my landed property, Ivy Island. This, it will be remembered, was the gift of my grandfather, from whom I derived my name. From the time when I was four years old, I was continually hearing of this property. My grandfather always spoke of me, in my presence, to the neighbors and to strangers as the richest child in town, since I owned the whole of Ivy Island, one of the most valuable farms in the state. My father and mother frequently reminded me of my wealth, and hoped I would do something for the family when I attained my majority. The neighbors professed to fear that I might refuse to play with their children because I had inherited so large a property. These constant allusions, for several years, to Ivy Island, excited at once my pride and my curiosity, and stimulated me to implore my father's permission to visit my property. At last, he promised I should do so in a few days, as we should be getting some hay near Ivy Island. The wished-for day at length arrived, and my father told me that, as we were to mow an adjoining meadow, 
I might visit my property in company with the hired man during the nooning. My grandfather reminded me that it was to his bounty I was indebted for this wealth, and that had not my name been Phineas, I might never have been proprietor of Ivy Island. To this my mother added, Now, Taylor, don't become so excited when you see your property as to let your joy make you sick, for remember, rich as you are, that it will be eleven years before you can come into possession of your fortune. She added much more good advice, to all of which I promised to be calm and reasonable, and not to allow my pride to prevent me from speaking to my brothers and sisters when I returned home. When we arrived at the meadow, which was in that part of the plum trees, known as East Swamp, I asked my father where Ivy Island was. Yonder, at the north end of this meadow, where you see these beautiful trees rising in the distance. All the forenoon I turned grass as fast as two men could cut it, and after a hasty repast at noon, one of our hired men, a good-natured Irishman named Edmund, took an axe on his shoulder and announced that he was ready to accompany me to Ivy Island. We started, and as we approached the north end of the meadow, we found the ground swampy and wet, and were soon obliged to leap from bog to bog on our route. A misstep brought me up to my middle in water. To add to the dilemma, a swarm of hornets attacked me. Attaining the altitude of another bog, I was cheered by the assurance that there was only a quarter of a mile of this kind of travel to the edge of my property. I waded on. In about fifteen minutes more, after floundering through the morass, I found myself half-drowned, hornet-stung, mud-covered, and out of breath, on comparatively dry land. Never mind, my boy, said Edmund. We have only to cross this little creek, and you'll be upon your own valuable property. We were on the margin of a stream, the banks of which were thickly covered with alders. I now discovered the use of Edmund's axe, for he felled a small oak to form a temporary bridge to my island property. Crossing over, I proceeded to the center of my domain. I saw nothing but a few stunted ivies and straggling trees. The truth flashed upon me. I had been the laughingstock of the family and neighborhood for years. My valuable ivy island was an almost inaccessible, worthless bit of barren land, and while I stood deploring my sudden downfall, a huge black snake, one of my tenants, approached me with upraised head. I gave one shriek and rushed for the bridge. This was my first, and I need not say, my last visit to Ivy Island. My father asked me how I liked my property, and I responded that I would sell it pretty cheap. My grandfather congratulated me upon my visit to my property as seriously as if it had been indeed a valuable domain. My mother hoped its richness had fully equaled my anticipations. The neighbors desired to know if I was not now glad I was named Phineas, and for five years forward I was frequently reminded of my wealth in Ivy Island. As I grew older, my settled aversion to manual labor far more other kind, was manifest in various ways. 
which were set down to the general score of laziness. In despair of doing better with me, my father concluded to make a merchant of me. He erected a building in Bethel, and with Mr. Hiram Weed as a partner, purchased a stock of dry goods, hardware, groceries and general notions, and installed me as clerk in this country store. Of course, I felt my oats. It was condescension on my part to talk with boys who did outdoor work. I stood behind the counter with a pen over my ear, was polite to the ladies, and was wonderfully active in waiting upon customers. We kept a cash, credit, and barter store, and I drove some sharp bargains with women who brought butter, eggs, beeswax, and feathers to exchange for dry goods, and with men who wanted to trade oats, corn, buckwheat, axe-helves, hats, and other commodities for tenpenny nails, molasses, or New England rum. But it was a drawback upon my dignity that I was obliged to take down the shutters, sweep the store, and make the fire. I received a small salary for my services, and the perquisite of what profit I could derive from purchasing candies on my own account to sell to our younger customers, and, as usual, my father stipulated that I should clothe myself. There is a great deal to be learned in a country store, and principally this, that sharp trades, tricks, dishonesty and deception are by no means confined to the city. More than once, in cutting open bundles of rags, brought to be exchanged for goods, and warranted to be all linen and cotton, I have discovered in the interior worthless woolen trash, and sometimes stones, gravel or ashes. Sometimes, too, when measuring loads of oats, corn or rye, declared to contain a specific number of bushels, say sixty, I have found them four or five bushels short. In such cases, someone else was always to blame, but these happenings were frequent enough to make us watchful of our customers. In the evenings and on wet days, trade was always dull, and at such times the storytelling and joke-playing wits and wags of the village used to assemble in our store, and from them I derived considerable amusement, if not profit. After the store was closed at night, I frequently joined some of the village boys at the houses of their parents, where, with storytelling and play, a couple of hours would soon pass by, and then as late, perhaps, as eleven o'clock, I went home and slyly crept upstairs so as not to awaken my brother with whom I slept, and who would be sure to report my late hours. He made every attempt and laid all sorts of plans to catch me on my return, but as sleep always overtook him, I managed easily to elude his efforts. Like most people in Connecticut in those days, I was brought up to attend church regularly on Sunday, and long before I could read I was a prominent scholar in the Sunday school. My good mother taught me my lessons in the New Testament and the Catechism, and my every effort was directed to win one of those rewards of merit, which promised to pay the bearer one mill, so that ten of these prizes amounted to one cent, and one hundred of them, which might be won by faithful assiduity every Sunday for two years, would buy a Sunday school book worth ten cents. Such were the magnificent rewards held out to the religious ambition of youth. There was but one church or meeting-house in Bethel, which all attended, 
sinking all differences of creed in the Presbyterian faith. The old meeting-house had neither steeple nor bell, and was a plain edifice, comfortable enough in summer, but my teeth chatter even now when I think of the dreary, cold, freezing hours we pass in that place in winter. A stove in a meeting-house in those days would have been a sacrilegious innovation. The sermons were from an hour and a half to two hours long, and through these the congregation would sit and shiver till they really merited the title the profane gave them of blue skins. Some of the women carried a footstove, consisting of a small square tin box in a wooden frame, the sides perforated, and in the interior there was a small square iron dish, which contained a few live coals covered with ashes. These stoves were usually replenished just before meeting time at some neighbor's near the meeting-house. After many years of shivering and suffering, one of the brethren had the temerity to propose that the church should be warmed with a stove. His impious proposition was voted down by an overwhelming majority. Another year came around, and in November the stove question was again brought up. The excitement was immense. The subject was discussed in the village stores and in the juvenile debating club. It was prayed over in conference, and finally in general society's meeting. In December, the stove was carried by a majority of one and was introduced into the meeting-house. On the first Sunday thereafter, two ancient maiden ladies were so oppressed by the dry and heated atmosphere occasioned by the wicked innovation, that they fainted away and were carried out into the cool air where they speedily returned to consciousness, especially when they were informed that owing to the lack of two lengths of pipe, no fire had yet been made in the stove. The next Sunday was a bitter cold day, and the stove, filled with well-seasoned hickory, was a great gratification to the many, and displeased only a few. After the benediction, an old deacon rose and requested the congregation to remain, and called upon them to witness that he had from the first raised his voice against the introduction of a stove into the house of the Lord. But the majority had been against him, and he had submitted. Now, if they must have a stove, he insisted upon having a large one, since the present one did not heat the whole house, but draw the cold to the back outside pews, making them three times as cold as they were before. In the course of the week, this deacon was made to comprehend that, unless on unusually severe days, the stove was sufficient to warm the house, and, at any rate, it did not drive all the cold in the house into one corner. During the Reverend Mr. Lowe's ministrations at Bethel, he formed a Bible class, of which I was a member. We used to draw promiscuously from a hat a text of scripture and write a composition on the text, which compositions were read after service in the afternoon to such of the congregation as remained to hear the exercises of the class. Once, I remember, I drew the text Luke 10.42. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Question. What is the one thing needful? My answer was nearly as follows. 
This question, what is the one thing needful, is capable of receiving various answers, depending much upon the persons to whom it is addressed. The merchant might answer that the one thing needful is plenty of customers, who buy liberally, without beating down and pay cash for all their purchases. The farmer might reply that the one thing needful is large harvests and high prices. The physician might answer that it is plenty of patience. The lawyer might be of opinion that it is an unruly community, always engaged in bickerings and litigations. The clergyman might reply, it is a fat salary with multitudes of sinners seeking salvation and paying large pew rents. The bachelor might exclaim, it is a pretty wife who loves her husband and who knows how to sew on buttons. The maiden might answer, it is a good husband who will love, cherish and protect me while life shall last. But the most proper answer, and doubtless that which applied to the case of Mary, would be, the one thing needful is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, follow in his footsteps, love God and obey his commandments, love our fellow man, and embrace every opportunity of administering to his necessities. In short, the one thing needful is to live a life that we can always look back upon with satisfaction, and be enabled ever to contemplate its termination with trust in him who has so kindly vouchsafed it to us, surrounding us with innumerable blessings, if we have but the heart and wisdom to receive them in a proper manner. The reading of a portion of this answer occasioned some amusement in the congregation, in which the clergyman himself joined, and the name of Taylor Barnum was whispered in connection with the composition. But at the close of the reading I had the satisfaction of hearing Mr. Lowe say that it was a well-written and truthful answer to the question, what is the one thing needful? End of chapter 1